This is a Sunday talk by Tom McFarland, titled Mystics of Ancient Greece, recorded March 10, 2002, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. A while ago, I put a question in the question box myself, and it was asking for a talk on Greek philosophy. <laughs> so this is what I get out of it. <laughs> so watch out. It's not always what you expect. <laughs> so here at the center, we hear uh, a lot about the mystics from all the different religious traditions, from Judaism and Christianity, from Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism. But we don't hear so much about the mystics from another tradition, which is the tradition of ancient Greek philosophy. And that was the motivation I had for putting the question in the box, was to, uh, to hear a little bit about what is their significance, uh, these mystics, and what do they have to teach us, and what is their importance to our current world situation, and so on. So, uh, in preparing for this talk, I uh, tried to find out the answers to my own questions, and so I'm going to try and share some of that with you here this morning. I did know, before I started to prepare for this talk, that the Greeks uh, obviously had a big influence on uh, Western culture. When we take history of Western culture in college or whatever, we uh, often start with the ancient Greeks, uh, because so much of our culture did come from there. And so it's not surprising that they did have an impact on Western culture. And there are several ways that they've impacted our culture in particular. One is that the Greek mystical philosophy was in many ways incorporated into Christianity when Christianity came onto the scene. And I'll talk a little bit more about this later. And so in a certain sense, uh, insofar as we've inherited some of that through Christianity, our modern culture has embodied that and has been living that uh, indirectly through that medium. And the other is through the revival in the interesting Greek thought in the Renaissance and you might call our secular culture and our scientific culture in particular. Many of the scientists were inspired by going back to the Greeks and Plato and Pythagoras in particular and uh, taking another look at their philosophy and uh, re-examining their world and nature in light of those ideas and so on. And so, so the modern uh, culture we've inherited, both science and religion, both trace their roots in many ways back to Greek thought. And so if we're trying to reconcile religion and science, it seems like it might be good to go back to the source of them both for some clues to that. And so that was one of the things that motivated me in asking the question. So what is philosophy? Well, there are several <coughs> ways to distinguish philosophy from other activities that we might uh, be engaged in, such as science or, uh, or religion or what have you. One is that philosophy asks certain questions, fundamental questions about ourselves and about the world, what is goodness? What is the truth? What is reality? These sorts of fundamental questions. And isn't satisfied or interested so much in more superficial questions. Another thing that distinguishes philosophy is its attitude towards asking those questions. 
It's an attitude of open-mindedness and inquiry. The philosopher approaches a question with an open mind as to what the answer is investigating. It's not a discipline where one is seeking to simply stake down a claim to an idea and defend it. All positions <coughs> ought to be capable of being questioned and criticized and scrutinized and investigated and so on. So we have the, the topic of philosophy, and we have an attitude towards it, and there are also some methods that philosophers tend to use. One is reason and analysis and intellectual criticism, the clarification of definitions of words and concepts and so forth. And that's especially characteristic of modern philosophy. So if you were to take philosophy courses uh, at the university here, for example, you'd likely be engaging in those sorts of activities. The topics that modern philosophy deals with have moved a little bit away from the ultimate questions and more towards things like analyzing language itself or logic or those sorts of topics. And in a certain sense has relegated the, the big, deeper questions of life to theology and religion. So in a sense, modern philosophy is somewhat secularized. But it wasn't always this way. Back in ancient Greece, there was a notion of philosophy that was a lot broader. It wasn't limited to reasoning and analysis, and it wasn't constricted in its topics. It dealt with uh, what we would today call religious questions of what is the best way to live? What is the meaning of life? What is the nature of reality? And it also involved other ways of investigating these questions other than just using thought and our faculty of reasoning. One example would be the acknowledgement that there is a spiritual faculty of knowing that human beings have. We're able to know reality in a way that transcends our faculty of reasoning. And although the Greeks used reasoning as a path to this kind of knowledge, they didn't stop at reasoning. So there was this uh, acknowledgement that there was a step beyond mere reasoning about things and intellectual investigation. There was, if you will, a spiritual way of knowing things that transcended the limits of the human mind. And the other thing that, that really distinguishes Greek philosophy is the fact that it wasn't just an activity that uh, was uh, kind of a pastime, your typical armchair philosopher image where someone sits around and just for fun thinks about bizarre theories of reality, but doesn't really change their life. It doesn't impact their life. In Greek philosophy, the idea is that you live the philosophy. The philosophy is relevant and very practical to your daily life. It is a way of life. And there was the widespread idea that to practice a philosophy meant to change your life and to submit yourself to moral discipline, to practicing virtues. And we see this, for example, in Pythagoras. Everything we know of Pythagoras indicates that he was essentially a religious figure and that his students weren't academic students in the modern sense. They were more like religious disciples. And if you wanted to study with Pythagoras, you went and you asked to join his group, and you started out by taking a vow of silence for a couple of years. And he had, from what we know, a whole list of various precepts that you were to practice <coughs> that belonged to his group. And so 
the idea was that these were cultivating moral virtues and self-awareness and self-knowledge, and that to practice philosophy, one was transforming one's own life and purifying one's mind and one's being. So that's quite a bit different than what would happen if you went to the U of O here and asked to study philosophy with someone. It's much more like what you would find if a disciple came to Jesus and said, I want to study with you. You know, they'd make pretty severe demands of you. So that's a big clue to the fact that philosophy back in ancient Greece meant something very different than what it means in modern culture. Another thing that the Pythagoreans practiced was every evening you were to engage in what they call an evening examination. And so before going to bed, you'd sit down or lay down or what have you and review your entire day in your mind and think about all of the actions that you perform throughout the day and how they stacked up against these virtues that you're trying to live by. And not surprisingly, that would often teach you something about yourself. And so this was another example of a concrete practice that they engaged in to help bring awareness to themselves of their own life and how they were living it with the idea that this was to purify oneself and bring more awareness of one's life. There was also this other idea that by doing this just before bedtime, you, in a sense, cleansed your mind of whatever issues, you might say, came up during the day. And so you go to sleep with more of a fresh mind that had, uh, in a sense, confessed all of its sins of the day, to put it in more Christian terms. And then that enabled you to go into sleep with your soul more prepared to receive teachings from the dream world, from the gods that communicated in that state of consciousness. And so there was also this idea of receiving guidance and teachings in this other state of consciousness and preparing <coughs> oneself for that. And so this was another concrete way that the Pythagoreans cultivated their religious life. Pythagoras also had part of his general philosophy, and perhaps what he's best well known for, is this idea that everything is number. In the Platonic cosmology, there was the notion that all manifestations in the world were structured in a way that was mathematical, but in a much broader sense than what we might think of as mathematical today. You might just say that things are ordered. And in fact, the word cosmos in Greek means order, and it's related to our word cosmetic, which also refers to beauty. And so the Greek idea of cosmos was that this was an ordered and very beautiful manifestation, and the beauty of it was intimately related with the order of it. There's uh, our idea of harmony, which is that things are harmonious if they're in balance, and that's a kind of orderedness of things. It's not just all disordered and chaotic and ugly. It's, it has an ordered beauty to it. So there was this idea that the that the universe was beauty manifesting with this kind of mathematical order. And Pythagoras had the idea that through this order, one could treat the ills of the soul, you might say. So he had connected this orderedness with music, for example. 
and the, the creation of music and the harmony of music relates to the orderedness of the different notes relative to each other. If you have a bunch of random notes that you're plucking on a harp, for example, it will sound all discordant and that won't be beautiful or pleasing. But if you pluck just the right ones, as musicians know how to do, there's a very pleasing sound. And Pythagoras' idea was that that is in tune, you might say, with the orderedness of the cosmos and the orderedness within our soul. It's pleasing to us because it resonates with that intrinsic orderedness within us. And that so music uh, was used by him as a kind of therapy of the soul that was used to help people overcome maladies and bring the soul to greater and greater health. And so this was another way that illustrates how the Pythagorean philosophy wasn't just some kind of abstract ideas about the world that was of no practical or religious significance. He was actually applying these ideas to help people become in closer contact with fundamental reality. And also this idea of number being connected to the basic uh, orderedness of the world is illustrated in the idea that everything in the manifest world, all this multiplicity and diversity that we see, <clears throat> is in some sense rooted or grounded in a fundamental reality that does not intrinsically have those divisions as part of it. And so just as the numbers 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, etc. are composed of units or one, all the multiplicity of the world is grounded in a single unified reality. And so this was a, a mystical idea that he expressed in, in terms of basic arithmetic, that whatever numbers you have, you can build them up from the basic number, which is one, which is the basis for all number. And so all the orderedness and beauty of the world derives from the fact that just as the numbers derive from the number one, all of this uh, in the world derives from a fundamental unified reality. And so this was an image that was used as part of his philosophy. There were some other philosophers that came right after Pythagoras that I'd like to mention because they were particularly important and influential on Plato's thought. One was Heraclitus, and he was famous for introducing or uh, stressing the importance of the, this idea of the Logos, which turned out to be important for Plato and, and was then in, later incorporated into Christianity. And Heraclitus taught that everything flows or is in flux or is in motion, or as the Buddhists might say, everything is impermanent. There are no abiding, static existences in the world. Everything's always transforming into its opposite. And there's always the conflict of opposites as well. But the underlying this opposition of all things, this relativity of all things, was a kind of orderedness that he called the Logos. And the Logos governs the way that things transform into each other. I have actually a quote of his that I wanted to share, where he talks a little bit about the Logos. He says, listening not to me, but to the Logos. So here we're, we're already keyed into the fact that somehow the, the Logos itself can talk to you, which is kind of interesting, because later on the Logos comes to be identified with Christ. So that's kind of interesting that he says this about 500 years earlier. 
listening not to me but to the Logos, it is wise to agree that all things are one. The ignorant do not comprehend how, in differing, it agrees with itself. A backward-turning connection like that of a bow and a lyre. So the Logos somehow contains this inherent contradiction within itself, which you might relate to the idea of how the yin contains the little dot of the yang and the yang, the yin, and all of that. And so the opposites in their extremes contain each other, and that's a fundamental idea in his philosophy. And Heraclitus was a contemporary of another philosopher named Parmenides, who taught something, in a certain sense, very different from this, but uh, on the other hand, it's also, in a funny way, the same. He taught that that real being was unchanging, and that for anything to really exist and to be, it couldn't change, because if it's going to change, it won't be itself anymore. So how could something be if it's changing, because if it's changing, it's going to become something that it's not, and so it can't be what it's not, and so this is actually a kind of argument that crops up in Buddhist philosophy, too. Nagarjuna makes a very similar argument about things when he proves that things can't have an inherent existence. But Parmenides uses this to argue that there is this one fundamental ground of reality that exists, and anything that's changing can't exist for this reason. And here's a very interesting quote from Parmenides that talks about this. Being is ungenerated and indestructible, whole, of one kind, and unwavering, and complete. Nor was it, nor will it be, since now it is, altogether, one, continuous. That it came from what is not, I shall not allow you to say or think. <laughs> For it is not sayable or thinkable that it is not. How might what is then perish? How might it come into being? For if it came into being, it is not. <laughs> so this is the idea of the uncreated as the ground of all creation. And in a certain sense, it's, it has a tension with Heraclitus, who was emphasizing how everything is changing. But you might also say that, well, they're just talking about the absolute truth and the relative truth. But they weren't clear on how exactly to reconcile those with each other. And so Plato came along and worked on that problem and came up with his philosophy. But before we get into Plato, I have to mention Socrates, because... Socrates came before Plato and was Plato's teacher. And so I want to insert him here. And there's a, there's a story I like about Socrates, which is that he was an Athenian and he lived in Athens and he basically wandered the streets asking people questions and inquiring with them, you know, what, what's this all about and tell me what you believe. And then he'd, you know, investigate it with them through dialogue. And one day he heard this rumor that the oracle at Delphi, this prophetess up there on this mountain in uh, northern Greece, said that he was the wisest man. And he was very puzzled and disturbed by this. He said, well, how can I be the wisest man? You know, I don't really know all that much. How could I be the wisest man? And so he decided he needed to find out what this oracle was talking about. 
So he thought, well, how can I find out if I'm the wisest man or not? Well, I'll go to who I think is maybe wise, and I'll ask them, you know, what they think. And so he started going around and talking to people. And he'd go to one person who's, let's say, a blacksmith, and he'd say, so tell me, you know, you seem to know this skill about what you do, and, and I don't know it. So he started asking them about what it is that they know how to do. And what he found out in the course of discussing what they know with him was that they really didn't know what they were doing. Um, they thought they knew a lot, but, but really when it came down to that, they hadn't really come to a deep understanding of anything that they were doing or the basis for it or anything. They had just sort of, oh yeah, I was taught to do this and I just do it. And they didn't really have a deeper understanding of any of the fundamentals. So whenever Socrates would question any of these people, he'd find that there came to a point where they would just say, well, I don't know really what I'm doing. <laughs> Um, and we might find this uh, ourselves if we were to question ourselves sufficiently. <laughs> so after he had gone around to enough people and with this sort of inquiry, he came to the conclusion that he was the wisest, not because he knew a lot, but because he was the only guy who knew that he didn't know. <laughs> and so that's why he was the wisest, or so the oracle says. So that was what you might call the kind of knowledge that is knowing that you don't know, which comes up a lot in mystical teachings, if you're familiar with them. And the way that Socrates would first approach this was through this method of Socratic dialogue. And one way of describing what that method is, is that you start with some kind of statement or belief about something that's more or less taken for granted, either by you or everyone else, or something that you've maybe inherited from your society. So you take a statement like that, let's say, um, in order to be a valuable person, you have to have a prestigious profession. Let's just take that as a statement that many people might take for granted. And then you start by examining that, and in particular, thinking of a counterexample for it. And so you take the statement, and you think of a case where it wouldn't be true. So, for example, think of someone who maybe has a prestigious profession but isn't such a valuable person in society, or vice versa, someone who's a valuable person but doesn't happen to have a prestigious position. So, can anyone give me a counterexample to that? George <laughs> Okay. Any others? Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, okay. Donald Rumsfeld. Donald Rumsfeld. Good. Yeah, so those are some prestigious professions that we wouldn't consider valuable. And Mother Teresa, I presume, would be the valuable one that isn't in a prestigious profession. So we have counterexamples from both sides. And so then the next step in the procedure is to modify the statement to somehow take into account those counterexamples. And so we refine the statement. And so how could we refine that statement to, let's say, account for those counterexamples? Joel? People who have prestigious positions and are also generous. Oh, okay. Money. Okay. Okay, so that's that's uh, one way to, to tweak it a little bit, to refine it a little bit. Okay, so then what we do is we actually repeat the procedure then. We say, okay, people are valuable who uh, have prestigious positions and are generous. 
Okay, so that takes care of some of those. We've gotten rid of some of the counterexamples. Okay, so we need to refine it some more. And so what happens is you go through this procedure and it requires some patience and diligence and you have to think for quite a while and sometimes you might get to a block where you can't think of any counterexamples. You might have to ponder it for a few days. But in any case, you can continue this process and keep cycling back until you refine and refine and refine your statement until you get to a point where you just can't think of any counterexamples anymore. And then you might start to have some confidence in this position rather than just receiving the given wisdom of the society uh, in the beginning. And one of the advantages of going through this whole process, especially with the beliefs that one tends to hold oneself, is that if people question or challenge your way of living, you can explain to them why it is that you live that way, as opposed to saying, oh my God, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should be doing that. No, maybe I should be doing this. Maybe they're right. Maybe I'm not right. Maybe, And then you're just spinning around in, in doubt and wondering what you should do. And Whereas if you've already gone through this and have come to an understanding about how to live your life, then you have at least a direction to follow and won't be so easily thrown off course by other people because you'll understand why it is that you're following the, the path that you are. So that's Socratic dialogue. The other thing about Socrates' life that I like to mention is the way he died. As you can imagine, if someone goes around and, and questions everyone else in this matter, it might get some of them upset. And it appears that something like this happened uh, when he was alive, and he upset enough people that in his old age they decided to accuse him of preaching about false gods and corrupting the youth and they put him to trial, and they sentenced him to death. And Socrates defended himself at his own trial very passionately. But when they sentenced him to death, he completely accepted the verdict. And some of his students came into the prison cell where he was being held before he died and said, well, you know, maybe we can, you know, get in and get you sneak you out and get you to escape. You can run off and, you know, disappear and you don't have to die. And, and Socrates says, no, 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 no. You know, I am part of this society and, you know, I may not agree with everything completely, but I worked my life to try and make this society better and I worked within it and, and I abide by its laws, you know, however flawed they may be. And for me to then say, well, I'm an exception to those and just run away would be an act of cowardice. And that was one of his responses. And, and the other was, besides, what do I have to fear of death? A philosopher practices dying his entire life. Why should it upset him when it finally arrives? And his students are going, well, what are you talking about? And he says, well, think about it. The practice of a philosopher is to cultivate detachment from what is changing and to orient oneself more towards that unchanging ground of all things. And so when death comes, well, it's that's exactly what the philosopher has been working for his whole life. All of the uh, the unchanging things associated with the body disappear. And so what could be better for the philosopher than that? So he drank his hemlock tea and, and died. It's an inspiring story to me because it shows how his philosophy really did transform his life and in particular allowed him to face death with perfect equanimity. 
So while he was alive, one of Socrates' students was Plato. And Plato was the one that really made Socrates famous by writing all of his dialogues. And he started up the Platonic Academy, where he taught his students. And Plato's maybe most famous for his theory of the forms. And you can think of this as a way that he struggled to reconcile these opposites of Parmenides and Heraclitus. The unchanging world of being with the changing world of becoming and change. And in the Platonic scheme of things, there are these two worlds, the world of being and the world of becoming. And then he kind of subdivides these two. In the world of becoming, there are the immediate sensations themselves, and then there are the objects of the sensation. So, for example, this glass of water, there's the immediate sensation I have of the glass of water, and then there's the glass of water itself. And these are both two parts of this world of becoming. Not only do my sensations of this change as I turn away from it and look back to it, but the glass itself will change one day, it'll break and be thrown away and discarded or so forth. And so the glass itself will then change. And the glass itself is a little bit more real than the perceptions of the glass. They're more stable than the perceptions of the glass. And then above this world of becoming is the world of being, and he subdivides that too into kind of two orders. One is the order of mathematical forms and uh, reasoning and ideas. And then above that are the transcendent ideas of which those are instances. For example, I can think of a triangle, and then I can think of particular triangles. There are lots of different kinds of triangles, for example. There are triangles with right angles, there are triangles with all sides equal, there are triangles with one side really long, and those are all different examples of the idea of a triangle. And so that's just to uh, give you a feel for what it means for there to be an abstract idea that has a lot of different particular instances. And in the highest level of this world of being is the well, what Plato called the form of the good and later Neoplatonists called the One. And this is reached not through reasoning. With mathematical ideas, you can think about those with your rational mind, but above that requires another faculty of knowing that you might say is above reasoning. And Plato and the Neoplatonists started to approach that through a process of what they call dialectic. And dialectic can be distinguished from other forms of reasoning by first noticing that most reasoning uh, is deductive. You start from some presuppositions or assumptions, and then you draw conclusions from those. You start with a hypothesis, and you draw conclusions from those, or you test those. And so it always has kind of an anchor, something you're taking for granted. Whereas in dialectic, you take nothing for granted but you still argue to examine all sides of a particular issue. So, for example, this is what Plato writes about dialectic. And this is in the Parmenides dialogue. And in this dialogue, uh, Plato has Socrates talking to Parmenides. 
it's kind of interesting, actually, because Plato's really famous for this idea of forms and this philosophy where these forms are these fixed ideas that exist in all eternity, and then the world of changing things are manifestations of those or instances of those. And people think that Plato was totally committed to that. But in this dialogue that Plato himself wrote, he totally demolishes that theory and rips it to shreds. So it makes it pretty clear that Plato himself understood at least the limitations of that way of seeing things. He didn't consider that an absolute kind of theory. It may have been useful provisionally, but it wasn't his final position. So in any case, in this dialogue, Socrates, who is expounding this theory of forms, meets up with the great Parmenides, and Parmenides says, so tell me, you know, young boy, what do you have to say about, you know, how the forms relate to their instances and all of this, and Parmenides asks him a few questions and totally demolishes this idea, and Socrates is totally befuddled and say, oh my god, you know, what are we going to do, we can't, we don't have any forms, how can we think of anything even? And Parmenides says, well, I'll tell you why. He says, you're undertaking to define the beautiful and the just, these forms, and the good and other particular forms too soon, before you've had preliminary training. He's saying Socrates is uh, not mature enough in his philosophy. He hasn't been trained enough. He says, you must make an effort and submit yourself while you're still young to a more severe training in what the world calls idle talk and condemns as useless. He's there referring to this practice of dialectic, which he's saying most worldly people don't understand what his purpose is at all, and so they say, well, they're just babbling about nonsense there. And then he goes on to say to Socrates, if you want to be thoroughly exercised, you must not merely make the supposition that such and such a thing is, and then consider its consequences. He's talking about the deductive or hypothetical reasoning there. You must also take the supposition that the same thing is not. So you have to assume the opposite as well. The idea is that you have to look at all sides of any issue and assume that it is and assume that it isn't. And after you've examined it from all the different angles, you start to see that no one of those perspectives, if you will, can be considered absolute. And that then opens up the mind to seeing something beyond all of these ideas, beyond these different perspectives. And this is similar to a technique that Nagarjuna goes through in Buddhist philosophy, where you take any philosophical position and you show that it eventually leads to contradictions. And then you take its opposite position and you show that that leads to contradictions. And then you take the two positions together, and you show that those lead to contradictions. And then you deny that, and show that that leads to a contradiction. And so this, in a sense, exhausts the rational mind of its false idea that it can come to a final conclusion about ultimate reality. And so this is a, a practice of philosophical inquiry that helps the mind go beyond mere thinking. And eventually, it opens up the mind to this level of ineffability and awakens the knowledge of the one and that gives rise to all these different forms. Plato has an interesting statement in one of his letters that he wrote where someone was talking about his teaching and how they had written a treatise on it or something. They had studied with Plato for a while and then gone off and written a treatise about it. And someone had said, yeah, I heard this guy, he said some stuff about some of your... Uh, 
secret oral teachings, you know, and he'd written them down. And Plato was commenting on this. He's talking about his own philosophy now, and he says, I certainly have composed no work in regard to it, nor shall I ever do so in the future, for there is no way of putting it in words like other studies. Acquaintance with it must come rather after a long period of attendance on instruction in the subject itself and of close companionship, when suddenly, like a blaze kindled by a leaping spark, it is generated in the soul and at once becomes self-sustaining. So this is interesting for two reasons. One, he talks about this, this long apprenticeship and training, and then suddenly an awakening of sorts, and the other that the, the knowledge that comes from that can't be put into writing. Plato didn't write it down, and he'll never write it down because it can't be written down. And so no other guy could have written it down either. And so that's a very interesting and illuminating point, which also puts his whole philosophy into perspective as well in his theory of forms. So you can look back at the theory of forms now and you can say, well, this is a provisional teaching, a stepladder, you might say, to help us go from where we are to something maybe a little bit more refined to where we can leap off into the one. And this last step they talk about when they leap off into the one after the dialectic, they talk about it in terms that sound a lot like the neti neti in Hinduism, which is also called the via negativa in the Western traditions. And Proclus, who was the Neoplatonist I referred to earlier, talks about this via negativa and the one, and he relates it to the other uh, ways of knowing things. And he says, as by opinion we know the objects of opinion, and as we know by discursive intellect the objects of that faculty, and as by the intuitive intellectual element in us, we know the object of the intellect. Even so, it is by the one that we know the one. This is the same as saying that it is by non-being that we know the one. And this in turn is equivalent to saying that it is by negation that we know the one. And this idea was incorporated into Christian mysticism from the Neoplatonists. Proclus heavily influenced a, uh, a writer named Dionysius who wrote some texts that were fundamental to all the Christian mystics. All the Christian mystics uh, almost refer back to him. And his teaching was obviously Neoplatonism recrafted in Christian terminology. And so this is how that stream of Greek mysticism entered the Christian tradition and was in a sense incorporated because later on, of course, all the Greek philosophers were condemned as pagans by the church. Platonic Academy was shut down and so forth. But the teaching, in a sense, since it had been incorporated into Christianity, was still alive there in another form. And those teachings, uh, you know, as we know, come up in... Uh, things that Meister Eckhart says. That could have been Meister Eckhart talking right there, the quote I read from Proclus, for example. Some other people who were very important in taking this Neoplatonic thought and 
transposing it into Christian terms were Philo of Alexandria, who was actually Jewish, and around the time of Christ, he took the idea of the Logos and reformulated these Greek philosophical ideas in terms of the Jewish teachings and creation and so forth, so that the Logos was involved in the creation of the world. There were also some Platonic Christians. One was Clement and one was uh, Origen, and they were around the second century after Christ. And they also took the Platonic teachings and expressed them in Christian terms. And then very important was St. Augustine, who was a Platonist and very heavily influenced by Plato and expressed his ideas of Christianity in very Platonic terms and then subsequently influenced Western Christianity very heavily with those ideas. And so they came into Christianity that way as well. And Dionysius I already mentioned. If there are any questions, I think we have some time to address them. Yeah, Virginia? Doesn't Logos mean word? That's one of the translations, yeah. In the, in the Gospel of John where it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, that's a translation of Logos. So it's, in the beginning was the Logos. The word Logos has a lot of different meanings. It's loaded. It's, it's related to our word logic. It has a whole constellation of meanings, and, and identifying it with Christ is just one way of uh, interpreting that, <coughs> and in a sense, connecting Christ with a whole constellation of other philosophical ideas and things, and so it had a lot of potency, this one word. Yeah? I have a problem with seeing Socrates and Plato and, and all of the, the continuing philosophers from that point on as people who contributed to a mystic worldview. I think quite to the contrary, they contribute to a dualistic perspective of the world. I, I'm claiming that you can view Plato as a mystic, and with any mystic, We've seen in religious traditions that their teaching can then be interpreted in what you might call a dualistic way, and then that can itself become a kind of tradition that I would say isn't true to the complete depths of what the person had to teach. And so, you know, you can also say Christianity uh, became very dualistic, that, uh, you know, God was forever unknowable, etc., etc. But is that to say that Jesus wasn't a mystic? You know, re religious traditions become exoteric mm -hmm. and, uh, and get attached to certain dogmas and things. And the same happens in philosophy, I think. And so it's, it's helpful to distinguish those from each other. And in a certain sense, we'll never know what Plato really believed or thought. But I think that there's, there's enough evidence to satisfy me anyway, such as in his seventh letter, that that he was he was a mystic and I think if you if you really go deep into trying to understand what the Parmenides dialogue really meant for example that that leads you to a very uh, mystical non-dual position that for example Proclus talks in very non-dual terms about the one um, the one can't be a one opposed to many because then it wouldn't be one you'd have two different things and so he's, he's led inevitably to a non-dualistic position so, at the very least, I think that Plato can be interpreted from a non-dual perspective. That's not to say that that's what has historically happened. In fact, it, you know, I think the opposite has happened. And what I'd like to do is try to show the other side of the story. Any other questions, Joel? I'd just like to comment on that, because I, uh, a number of years ago, read a lot of contemporary scholars on Plato. And I think from, oh, I don't know, the beginning or the somewhere in the... 
19th century on, there was a great attempt to demystify Plato. And because it became very clear that actually science comes from Plato and Pythagoras, not from Aristotle and this other idea. So if uh, Pythagoras and Plato were mystics, this gives science a mystical basis, and nobody wanted that, materialists did. So I read a number of uh, books uh, insisting that Plato couldn't have been a mystic. And I suggest, it's interesting, you go read them, I can't tell you what's, you know, but to me, what they convinced me was that he was a mystic, actually. Even people trying to convince us that he wasn't. And then, as Tom says, there's the seventh letter and... Uh, then there have been critiques of that, saying, well, this couldn't have been written by Plato because it's mystical, but and, you know, Plato wasn't a mystic. You know, the circular reasoning goes on. By the way, another way that the Greek philosophy has uh, infused our culture and our worldview is in our language. We speak a lot of Greek, actually. The very word philosophy, it means the love of wisdom. And when we talk about philosophy, we're talking about the love of wisdom. But does it really mean that anymore? So that's an interesting question to ponder. Maybe this is a good time to bring the formal part of the discussion to a close. There's tea in the other room, and if you'd like to discuss anything else about what I've said, I'm available. So thank you for coming.